Well, let me ask you, how many of you taught your kids to drive? Let, let, let me see a show of hands. Okay, let me see kids, kids in the room. If your parents taught you how to drive, let me see your hands. Okay, there, there's a lot that have experienced this, uh, this tragedy, okay? And um, I, 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 a couple of years ago, my, my son's 14 now, wasn't a couple of years ago, it was probably a year ago, started teaching my son to, to drive a little bit. So we went to a parking lot at a school and um, it was a total nightmare. And I decided at that moment, we're not doing this. We're gonna do driver's ed. You're going to driver's ed. Um, and if you've done that, man, God bless you. I'm glad you survived that. Maybe you didn't, I don't know. But I, I will never do that. I'm, we're sending our kids to driver's ed. I'll never forget going to driver's ed. Uh, 15 years old here at Lubbock. I think it was called Lubbock Driving School here in town. Driving that car with student driver on the side of it, right? And you got the guy next to you that's got, you know, his own wheel and brake and gas. I don't, I don't know what all he had, but he can control the car. That's all I know. And uh, he said one time, we were just learning how to drive. He goes, all right, Clayton, we're going to go to the most dangerous intersection in all of Lubbock. And I'm like, what? Don't you see student driver on the side of this car? Like, like that's not a good idea. And he's like, we're going to know the most dangerous intersection in all of Lubbock. And for that matter, he said, it's the most dangerous intersection in the state, according to him. And I was like, what are we doing? And so we go there. It's an old intersection. It's not there anymore. That's how dangerous it was. They, they totally wiped it out and started over, changed it. It's an old intersection on the southwest corner of Brownfield Highway and Loop 287. If you grew up here, you've been here for very long, you know what I'm talking about. There was all kinds of directions and which ways to go. And he called it the rat trap. He named it that after mousetrap the board game, because he said, no matter which way you go in this, you're going to get trapped and it's dangerous. All right. And so he taught us to drive going through this dangerous intersection, reading the signs and yielding and stopping. And I'm just like, what are we doing here? This is crazy. It's no longer there. That's how dangerous that intersection was. But I know most of us probably remember what it was like to learn how to drive, whether your parents taught you or maybe you went to driver's ed. It's a nerve wracking experience, both learning and teaching. I've learned that too. Regardless of what end you're on of that equation, it's a nerve wracking, scary experience. Well, here's what's interesting about the book of Colossians. It's the book that we're starting today. We're starting a new series called Supreme. We're going to study the book of Colossians verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Colossians is like a driver's manual. It's like driver's ed. It's going to teach us and show us how to walk with Jesus and how to be a church together as a family. It's like driver's ed. It's like a driver's manual for the Christian life and for the life of the church. Now, I'm super excited because we are integrating these studies, these books of the Bible studies that we're going to do. We're integrating them into our groups, youth ministry, kids ministry, college ministry, and into our daily devotionals on our app. So if you're in a city group, uh, we're going to be studying the book of Colossians together. Uh, Pastor Brandon has put together a, a Bible study and questions and prayer for our groups, all related to what we talk about on Sundays. And so if you're not in a group, now's the time to, great time to get into a city group. Jump on our app, click city groups. Sign up for a group and study the book of Colossians together with your spiritual family in Christ. And then I'm also super excited about the relaunch, the newly designed relaunch of our daily devotionals on our app. I'm gonna give you a preview of it right now. Uh, on our app, we're gonna be going through the book of Colossians and everything we talk about on Sundays. And so right here, I know you probably can't read all this, but we've got today's scripture reading. So Colossians 1, 1 through 2. We've got commentary now on those verses. So some, uh, some uh, study notes for you, some commentary so you can maybe understand better what you're reading. We've got study questions 
questions here with questions that are directly relating to the verses uh, that she just read. And then we've got things to pray. We've got some prayer points here and some things you can pray about based on the scripture reading. So that's all in our daily devotionals. We do them five days a week, Monday through Friday. They're on our app, the City Church Lubbock. Download it in your app store, join a group, start the daily devotionals with us tomorrow, and let's study the book of Colossians together. Colossians is one of Paul's shortest letters to a church, but it's also one of the most exciting. It is written to a young church discovering what it's like to believe in Jesus and to be the church of Jesus Christ together. Paul encourages these followers of Jesus to explore the treasures of the gospel and then to live their lives accordingly. And so how appropriate is it for us to, to study this book of Colossians as a pretty new church? We're two and a half years old, we'll be three this fall. We're still a relatively very new church. And so what a great letter for us to study together. This church in Colossus got its start during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus. It's about 52 to 55 AD. It was during this time that a Colossian named Epaphras traveled to Ephesus and responded to Paul's preaching of the gospel. Paul was in Ephesus ministering. You can read about that in Acts chapter 19. He's preaching the gospel. Epaphras is there. He's traveled to Ephesus, he hears the gospel, his life is totally changed. And then this new believer returns to his hometown of Colossus. He starts sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with his family and friends. And it results in the birth of this new church, the Colossian church. So don't ever underestimate what God can do when you share your story with somebody. When you tell someone else about what Jesus has done for you, when you pray for someone, when you invite them to church to, to hear the gospel. Epaphras just was invited. He, he went and he heard Paul preaching. His life was changed. He goes back to Colossus. He starts telling everybody about this Jesus that's changed his life. And there's a new church that's birthed out of the testimony, the witness of this one regular guy. He's not some super apostle. He's just a regular guy. And he starts telling everybody what Jesus has done for him. And it results in the birth of this church in Coloss. Now, we got a problem though, because at the time of this writing, Epaphras is with Paul in Rome and has already shared the bad news with him that there's a dangerous, false teaching threatening the church at Coloss. And so that means if there's false teaching and false teachers, then there's true teaching and true teachers. And so Paul is going to write this church and he's going to give them the true message of the gospel. And we find that here in God's word. He addresses the false teaching and the false teachers. And he says, no, like a mechanic, he brings realignment and he brings them back into line with God's word and with the good news of the gospel. Paul in Romans one says that when we're left to ourselves, we come up with foolish thoughts about who God is and what he's like and what he wants. Foolish thoughts. We don't come up with ideas about who God is. We don't have to postulate about who God is. We don't have to theorize about who God is and what he's like. God has told us, he's revealed himself to us. And so there's nothing for us to figure out or to come up with. We just read God's word and we learn about who God is and what he wants and how to have a relationship with him. We come up with foolish thoughts, Paul says, about who God is. And that's what's happening here in the church in Coloss. Later in Colossians, he's going to say this this. Philosophy that's risen up is, is human thinking. It's satanic in its origin. It's human thinking, so it's foolish. It sounds high and mighty and intelligent, but it's really just foolish, satanic thinking. And he says it's false 
It's not the real gospel. And he calls it out. You see, Paul's letters always bring alignment. He writes to the Galatians who've got too many rules. They've gone too far right. They're getting too conservative. And he brings them back to the scripture and to the gospel. And then he writes to the Corinthians who've gone too far left. They've gotten too liberal. Their compassion has lost its tether to their conviction from the scripture. And he brings realignment back to the scripture and back to the gospel. And Paul is doing that exact same thing. Like a great mechanic, he's bringing realignment to the Colossian church. He's giving them the driver's manual. He's giving them the driver's that, and he's teaching this new church, hey, you've got to reject this false teaching and you've got to stay true to the gospel and to the word of God. So Paul writes this letter to respond to this situation, to this false teaching, and to encourage these believers in their spiritual growth. And here's the theme. Here's the theme of the entire book of Colossians. Christ supreme is the theme. You like that? It's easy to remember. Christ supreme is the theme. That's the title of the series, supreme. That Christ is supreme over all things. That Christ supreme is God's will for your life. To have a relationship with God through Jesus where you follow Jesus as the Lord of your life because he is supreme over all things. He alone is worthy of your worship. He alone is worthy of your life and your faith. Paul's going to say, Christ, Jesus, who is supreme, is sufficient. You don't need anything else to save you. It's not Jesus plus something gets you to heaven and right with God. No, Paul's going to say it's Jesus plus nothing equals heaven. And it's Jesus plus nothing that will give you a right relationship with God. It is Jesus plus nothing. Christ is supreme and sufficient. And so let's dive into Colossians chapter one. We're gonna look at verse one and two this morning. I'm gonna give you an intro to the book of Colossians. We're gonna talk about who wrote this letter, the author. And then in verse two, we'll look at the audience. Who was Paul writing to? And so let's dive into Colossians one, verse one. Follow along in our app, the City Church Lubbock. You can download that in your app store and then um, click message notes when you get in there and the verses and the points and the quotes, everything is gonna be there for you and you can fill in the blank as you go. It will help you kind of stay engaged in our time together. So Colossians 1, starting in verse one, Paul writes this. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. So let's stop there. Let's talk about the author of this letter. Paul says this letter has been written by Paul. It's written by me. Paul went from jihad to Jesus. You can read all about it in Acts chapter nine. Acts chapter nine says that Paul was committed to jihad. He hated Jesus followers. And it says in Acts nine, he wanted to kill Jesus followers, that he was continually speaking out and breathing out murderous threats against the church of Jesus Christ. And it says he was eager to kill followers of Jesus. That was Paul. But then Paul sees Jesus. Jesus reveals himself to him. The, the risen Jesus appears to him, just like he appeared to the other apostles. He appears to Paul. Paul sees Jesus and Jesus is like, Paul, why are you persecuting me? You're persecuting my church. That's equivalence to persecuting me. And Jesus tells Paul that you're going to be my preacher, my evangelist to the Gentiles. And so Paul gives his life to Jesus and he becomes a preacher of Jesus, an evangelist for Jesus. He wanted to kill Jesus' followers. He was committed to jihad. Now he's committed to Jesus. 
And he would end up laying his life down as a martyr, believing that Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus reveals himself to Paul. Paul realized he's been thinking and believing wrongly. He's been living wrongly, but now he's committed to following Jesus because Jesus revealed himself to him and revealed his will to him. Paul is writing in prison about now in 62 AD. And if he's in Rome, there's different thoughts about which prison he's writing from. But if he's in Rome, then that means this writing of this letter is following all of the suffering that Paul went through in, in, in Acts, the beatings, the imprisonment, the, the shipwreck in Acts 27 and 28, the snake bite, the being marooned, uh, all the suffering that Paul has been through, the beatings, the whippings, the starvation, everything that he's been through as a preacher for Jesus. And yet in prison now, he is still faithfully serving his God. He's still writing, he's still worshiping, he's still discipling, he's still preaching. After everything he's been through, Paul, more than any of us, would have every reason to say, God, I've been serving you with all of my heart, and look, you've left me to suffer and to die in this prison. Three years later, after writing this, Paul would be martyred for his faith in Jesus. His head, tradition says, was cut off in Rome. And so Paul, more than any of us, has every reason to say, God, you must not care about me. You must not love me. I've been serving you. And look, you've left me to, to experience all this suffering and to die. You must not love me. You must not see me. You must not care about me. That's not what Paul does. Paul is faithful to his God in spite of his circumstances. And he believes that God is not only allowing him to suffer like this, but God is purposely planning for him to suffer like this in order that he might be a powerful witness for Jesus. God is using everything that he's going through to make the gospel even more appealing to those others who are suffering and revealing and showing that Jesus is supreme. He is worthy of it all, regardless of the cost and the suffering. Paul says he was chosen by the will of God. Paul is saying, I didn't choose God, God chose me. I, I was going for jihad against Jesus. I was against him, I hated God, I hated Jesus, I hated Jesus' followers, and God rescued me by his grace. I didn't earn it, I didn't deserve it. In fact, I deserve the, quite the opposite. Paul would say he was the chief, he was the worst of sinners. But God, Paul says, rescued me from my sin, even though I was the worst of sinners, to show that he is incredibly patient and kind and merciful, to show you, Paul would say, that he can save even the worst of sinners so he can save you too. You see, here's what you've got to understand. It doesn't matter how good you've been, how many times you've been to church, if you were birthed in the nursery itself, like it doesn't matter. You're just like Paul. Before you came to Jesus, you were committed to jihad. You hated God. You hated his word. You wanted nothing to do with him. At best, you were apathetic. You were evil in the eyes of God. You were an enemy of God before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Regardless of how good you think you are, the scripture says your, your good deeds are like filthy rags to a perfect and holy God. Every last one of us 
should be able to say, just like Paul, I was the worst of sinners, but God revealed himself to me. He did a miracle in my heart and saved me and I believed the gospel and he forgave me of my sin. I was the worst of sinners, but God rescued me. Paul says, I was chosen by the will of God. God loves rescuing bad people just like you and just like me and saving them, raising them from the dead to new life in Christ and using them for his good and his glory. God loves to rescue bad people and to use them for his good. And let's be very careful to not think that that was you and that was me. It was all of us. We were all committed to jihad against God. And then when you gave your life to Jesus, you committed yourself to Jesus. God saved you by his grace and he wants to use you for his good. God revealed himself to Paul. Paul saw Jesus and he realized God's new will and plan for his life. And so he repents, he changes direction, he changes his thinking, he changes his life and he begins to follow Jesus and he begins to live out God's plan and will for his life. But Paul wouldn't have known God's will for his life unless God revealed himself to him. But God did reveal himself to him. And so Paul knew his will. You see, here's what you've got to understand. You learn God's will through God's word. God has revealed himself. He revealed himself to Paul and he's revealed himself to you and to me through his son, Jesus, and in his word. God has revealed himself. And so you learn God's will. You learn who God is and what he's like, how to have a relationship with him. And you learn God's will for your life, just like Paul, through God's self-revelation of himself. And that is his word. And so today we're going to see, we're going to study God's will for our life. And in the rest of this series, you're going to learn God's will for your life as we study God's word. But here's what you've got to decide. Who are you going to listen to? Who's going to be your authority? You see, you've got to solidify that in your heart and in your mind. You see, most of society, including some Christians will say, I'm going to listen to the, the scripture and, and maybe my church some, I'm going to listen to culture and society some, I'm going to listen to maybe what the educational system has to offer. I'm going to listen to what the state has to say. I'm going to take all these different things and I'm going to put it all together and I'm going to formulate what I think and what I believe based upon my opinion and then what popular opinion says and what the culture is teaching. That is syncretism and it always leads to heresy. We don't figure out what we believe by listening to all these different sources. Christians have determined in their mind that their one source of authority and truth is the scripture. And they interpret everything else in society and culture and history through the lens of the scripture. You gotta determine what your authority is. You gotta determine who you're gonna listen to. You see, if you kind of have this conglomeration of all these different voices, it's going to lead to nothing but pain and regret and confusion. Because syncretism, this fusion of beliefs, this fusion of worldviews and systems always lose, leads to confusion and pain and death and destruction. Our source of authority, my source of authority is God's word. 
And so if you ask me, Clayton, hey, how did you land? How, how could you land where you landed last week when we were talking about this ordinance for the sanctuary city for the young boy? How, how could you land there? It, it's, it's hard and it's easy all at the same point. It's hard because of the content. It's hard because it's a hard thing to hear, but it's easy to get there because I start with God's word, not your experience or my experience, not what culture's saying, not what popular opinion says. I start with God's word. That's who I'm listening to. That's my authority. And so then I make judgments on everything else in this life through the lens of the scripture. And if you haven't gotten there yet, then the scripture says you're just going to be blown back and forth and you're going to be tossed by every new teaching and every new thought and every new pole. You're going to be tossed back and forth. You're going to be blown around in the storm of life until you anchor yourself to God's word. And you begin to learn God's will through his word. You see, every generation does some level of deconstruction when it comes to their faith and when it comes to the church. It's a kind of a popular word. If you haven't heard it in, in, in the younger generations and younger Christians who are kind of rejecting the church and rebelling against the church, they're, 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 they're doing what's called deconstruct. They've deconstructed their faith. They're deconstructing the church. And listen, that's, that's, that's healthy. Every generation has to do that. Every generation has to take what they've received and then kind of deconstruct it and find out what they believe and what the church should look like and what the church should be. That, that's, a, that's a healthy thing. But we always do so anchored to the scripture and through the lens of the scripture. You see, if you kind of break your tether and you kind of go outside the scripture and you begin to deconstruct your faith and deconstruct the church, then it just becomes about popular opinion. And again, just kind of what you think is best and that's always going to lead to destruction and death. Paul says that's foolish. Even our deconstruction of faith in the church and figuring out what we believe and what the church should look like and what the church should be happens anchored to the scripture and through the lens of the scripture. Paul says, I was chosen by God, by the will of God. He says, I was, I'm an apostle. I was chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul is referring here to the office of apostle. And to be an apostle, you had to meet two qualifications. You had to see Jesus risen from the grave and you had to be commissioned or sent by Jesus into your ministry by Jesus himself. So those are the two qualifications to be an apostle. You had to have seen Jesus risen from the grave and you had to be sent by Jesus into your ministry. And Wayne Grudem, sorry, Wayne Grudem says this, about this office of apostle based on these qualifications, these two qualifications for being an apostle. Here's what Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says about this office of apostle. The New Testament apostles had a unique kind of authority in the early church, authority to speak and write words, which were words of God in the absolute sense. To disbelieve or disobey them was to disbelieve or disobey God. The apostles therefore had the authority to write words, which became words of scripture. This fact in itself should suggest to us that there was something unique about the office of apostle and that we would not expect it to continue today for no one today can add words to the Bible and have them be counted as God's very words or as a part of scripture. In addition, the New Testament information on the qualifications of an apostle, the two that we just talked about, and the identity of the apostles also leads us to, to conclude that the office was unique and limited to the first century and that we are to expect no more apostles to fill this office today. And I agree. 
that when it comes to the office of apostle, there is no one qualified to ever again fill this office, to write authoritatively about God, to write the words of scripture. You could say it like this. We believe, as Christians have throughout the centuries, that the canon of scripture is closed which means you cannot add to the scripture, you cannot take away from the scripture, and no one else has the authority to write the words of God. Here's here's what that means. Everything you hear and study and read must be filtered through the scripture. And whatever doesn't line up with the scripture is wrong, it's false teaching. You see, you need to be filtering everything I'm saying right now through the scripture. Everything you read, every podcast or book, Christian book that you read, they are not authoritative. Only God's word is authoritative. And so my words or the words of another pastor or the words of, a, of an author are only as helpful to you as they are truthful and accurate to the word of God. Because no one has the ability or the power or the authority to write new words of scripture. That is for the apostles alone. Jesus said it was to the apostles that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth and remind them of everything that he said. No one else has that ability. Now today, some people will use this term apostle in a broader sense to refer to an effective church planter or to a significant missionary pioneer. And if you wanna use it in that broad sense, that's fine. You're talking about more of an apostolic gifting, not the office of apostle, but an apostolic gifting. And if you wanna use it in that broad sense, that's usually referring to an effective church planter. It's usually referring to a father of other pastors or a father of other churches. It's not something you really claim for yourself. It is something you can kind of come into or grow into over time. If you're leading other leaders and other pastors and you kind of effectively multiply pastors and churches at kind of this higher level and pastors seek you out for coaching and training, then some people will say that pastor or that leader has an apostolic gifting in a broad sense. And that's okay. But they do not fulfill or fill the office of apostle where what they say is authoritative or words from God. And so you need to be very cautious of people who go around calling themselves apostles and prophets. If someone ever comes up to you and say, well, I'm the apostle this, or I'm the prophet this, you need to have a bell going off in your mind. Warning, warning, warning. Most of the time, I'm not saying all the time, but most of the time, people who claim this office of apostle or prophet care way too much about their own status and their own ego. And most of the time, are not connected to a local church. Now, I'm not saying that's always the case, but it's the case a lot of times. Because apostles and and people who claim to be prophets like for their words, the things they say to be authoritative and for no one to challenge them usually, and that's not healthy. And so if you're ever getting advice from or reading a book by someone or getting a word from someone and they are not connected to a local church where they either work with other biblically qualified elders or under the authority, Christian authority of biblically qualified elders who can challenge them and talk with them and work with them. If they don't have that kind of humility to submit themselves to co-workers, co-elders or underneath Christian biblically qualified elders, then you've got a big problem. And I would run from that person. 
You see, there's a, there's a tension here. There's a tension here. Because most of us don't like authority. And, and that's true for all of us. Uh, it's especially true for guys. It's why a lot of us went to war with our moms in high school. I did, I'm sure a lot of you did, because we don't like being told what to do. But that's a problem. And that pride will lead to a fall. It will lead to destruction. You see, Paul here is writing to the Colossians and he's never even met them. He's never even been to this church. But he's writing to them as an apostle, as someone who has authority, biblical authority, and he's writing them and he's bringing correction to what they think. He's bringing them realignment back to the scripture and back to the gospel. We, we tend to rebel against authority, but that's not, that's not a great thing. It's not a good thing. It's not a healthy thing. Paul here is exercising some biblical authority, but not by himself. Look what he says. I'm also riding with my brother, Timothy. My brother, Timothy, who I've raised up, who I've discipled. Most people think he wasn't an apostle. Most people believe that Epaphras, this church planter that heard the gospel from Paul, wasn't an apostle. Paul was but he's writing this letter with Timothy, no doubt writing with Epaphras who's with him and who has told them about this false teaching that's risen up. And, and so Paul, even as an apostle, has coworkers. If you go to uh, Colossians chapter four, verse 10 through 12, he lists off several other coworkers who are not apostles. And so just notice, I just want you to note the humility of Paul to write this message, this letter to this church that brings Christian biblical authority, but he's not doing it on his own. He's co-laboring. He's got co-workers who are working with him. Epaphras, who's no doubt reading this letter, writing it with him. A Tim Timothy, who is probably writing it for him and challenging him and talking with him about it. They're writing this letter together. Paul's not on his own. Paul's not a lone ranger. He co-labors with other biblically qualified elders. And so let me, let me just say this. Every one of us, every last Christian on the face of this planet needs to either be co-laboring with other biblically qualified elders that they themselves submit to or under the spiritual Christian biblical authority of biblically qualified elders. Every last one of us. None of us are above that influence in our life. None of us are. I, I'm not. We have a board of elders here. Paul talks about establishing a plurality of elders in the churches. He says, raise up and appoint elders, plural, to lead your churches. And so here, we, we've got a board of elders. Uh, myself, Brandon, Barry, Mark, who are on our staff, Kobe Colley, who's not on our staff. We've got another man right now going through a, a process that we're interviewing and he's studying and he's reading and we're interviewing him so that he might, maybe in the next month or so, we would install him as an elder for our church. But I don't do this on my own. I'm co-laboring. I've got co-workers who are also elders in our church that hold me accountable a month ago. A month ago, we were trying to decide, hey, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond to this sanctuary city for the unborn ordinance? What, what are we going to do? And, and I said, hey, let's, let's kind of write this script for a video and we'll show this video in church and we'll post it to social media and, um, and, and that's what we'll do. And that was our plan. But about a month ago, Mark, or several weeks ago, Mark Tatum, who's one of our elders, pastors, who works for me, but I also kind of work for him. We got to work together because he's on our board. 
he texted me and he says, hey, Clayton, I think we need to change directions that Sunday and uh, you need to preach on this so we can give a whole service to it, so we can really talk about it, so we can really dive into the context of it and, and, and treat the content fairly and do it justice. And I wrote back to him and I was like, no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't really you know, wanna do that right now. We've got this series plan. And, and so I, I don't, I'm just kind of confessing to you. I didn't, I didn't initially wanna do this, it wasn't my idea. But Mark was like, no, I, I think we need to do it. So I said, okay, well, let's, let's chat more on Tuesday when we meet. So we're meeting there, it's me, Brandon, Barry, Mark, and, and we're all talking about this. And, and we, get, we begin to talk about it and we're praying about it. And uh, we decided together that we were gonna change directions. It wasn't my idea at first, but we decided together that that's what we would do. And so we began to write some of the content right then. And I counted five different meetings that I had with them and with others, with our whole staff, where I went through the entire message, I made some medicine changes, then I came back to them. We met again, made some medicine changes, then came back to them, made some medicine changes, came back, met five different times to go over that message, to change it, to edit it. Because I, I don't do this on my own. We do this together, we work together. That's the biblical way to lead a church is you do it together with biblically qualified leaders. Every difficult conversation I have with a staff member or someone else, I have one of those guys in there with me. Every difficult email I have to send, I have them review it and make edits and changes to it before I send it. Every controversial social media post that I've ever posted since we started this church, I have them review it and offer edits and changes to that post. I don't have to do that, but I choose to do that because I wanna submit myself under biblical Christian authority. We all have to, we're all called to, so that together, working together, we fall more in line with scripture and our lives and our beliefs are based more and more on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse two, now we're to the audience. Who is Paul writing to? Verse two, 2a, we are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossus who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. So now we're talking about the audience. Who's this letter written to? It's written to those who are in Christ, Paul says. These are holy people. Some translations say saints. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then you are a saint of God, you are holy and without blame, without blemish, spotless and clean before God. That is your position before God. You're a saint now. That's your identity. It's who you are. You are holy. You are a saint. If you are in Christ, Christ is in you. Paul says in Colossians, the hope of glory is Christ in me. Christ in me is my Hope. Paul knows who he is in Christ and he knows who they are and he's reminding them of who they are in Christ. You are saints. You are holy. Your sin has been forgiven. It's been cast as far as the east is from the west and you have been made clean and holy without blemish in the eyes and the sight of God. Jesus takes your sin through his death on the cross and he gives you his righteous life. And so now you stand before God, holy and righteous as a saint. That's who you are if you're in Christ. And that brings joy and freedom 
as you serve God and follow Jesus. But if you succumb to the pressure of this culture that tells you you need to find yourself, celebrate yourself, discover yourself, and self-actualize, if you believe that lie from Satan, then you will experience nothing but shame, despair, and hopelessness. Because that is a lie. We do not try to find ourselves and discover ourselves and self-actualize. We don't celebrate ourselves. That, that's not the call of scripture. That, that's not the life of, the, of a follower of Jesus. A follower of Jesus is discovering who they are in Christ. That is your identity now. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are in Christ. And nothing less than that pursuit, nothing less than that life in Christ will ever satisfy you or bring you joy. The more you try to self-actualize and find yourself or discover yourself, the more you will experience pain and regret. You see, the reality is, Christian, you're a child of God. You've been redeemed. You are now royalty. Jesus is our King of Kings and he's been risen from the grave and he's ascended to heaven to sit seat at the right hand of the Father. He is King of Kings and the scripture tells us if you're in Christ, you're a co-heir with Christ, which means this, you receive everything he receives. You will be raised from the grave and you will rule and reign under the kingship of Jesus, which makes you royalty. That's who you are now in Christ. A lot of people ask me, especially as it gotten warmer and maybe they're new around here. They've said, hey, Clayton, what does that tattoo stand for? I had some people this past week, some friends of ours that started coming to our church a couple of months ago. And they asked me this, this week, they said, hey, what, what does that tattoo stand for? You, you know, you love Budweiser? No, no. You know, do, do you know what I do for a living? I mean, come on. Um, you know, nothing against it, you know, whatever, but I'm just not gonna get a tattoo celebrating Budweiser, you know, right? Uh, someone else asked me, is it, uh, does it stand for Rolex? Again, do you know, do you know what I do for a living? I, I've never even held a Rolex, you know, m much less bought one or, or, or worn one, okay? So, so no, it's not for Rolex. I, I never knew there was all these different logos that had crowns in them, you know? Uh, someone asked me this week, does it stand for Crown Royal, the liquor? No, no, it doesn't. Not gonna have a tattoo that celebrates Crown Royal, you know, not, not, you know that, that's fine, but it's just not, not me, you know, it's not what I'm gonna celebrate or not what I'm gonna, you know, put on my body or whatever. I, I got this tattoo because it reminds me that I am royalty. I'm a child of God, that's who I am. I know who I am in Christ. I'm a saint. I'm holy and without blemish. I am royalty because I'm a child of the King. And so are you. That may sound weird to say because of your baggage, because of your past, but it's who you are. If you are in Christ, you are royalty. And when you know who you are and when you know what you're supposed to do and when you know what you're supposed to pursue, it brings life and joy and peace. That's where you're going to flourish as you Study and unlock and experience the treasures of the gospel that makes you a saint. It makes you royalty. You see, a saint is who you are constantly. It's your constant identity. A sinner 
is your occasional activity. And there's a big difference. Saint is your constant identity. Sinner is your occasional activity. And more, even more so, Paul says this, you may be in Coloss. He's writing to the, these believers in Coloss, but your citizenship, your identity is in Christ. You see, citizenship and residence are not the same thing. Your identity is not determined by your residence. Your identity is determined by your citizenship. And your citizenship is in heaven. You're a child of God. You see, there's a danger in failing to realize and enjoy all it means to belong to Christ. Here, here's the danger. If you fail to realize it and enjoy it, you begin to live for approval and for love rather than living from approval and from love. There's a big difference there. There's a massive difference there. One produces nothing but shame and despair, living for approval, living for love, living and trying harder and doing better in order to be right with God. That brings nothing but shame and despair. But living from approval, knowing I'm in Christ, I belong to Jesus, I'm a child of the King, I've been redeemed and I am royalty, I am righteous now in the eyes of God. That's my position before God. And when I live from that, it changes everything about the way that I think and live. And when I mess up and when I screw up, that's not me, I, I, I screwed up here, that's my occasional activity, but that's not who I am. I'm in Christ, I'm royalty. I'm a child of God. It changes everything when you live from approval and from love rather than for it. It's the difference between religion and a relationship. Religion says you gotta live for this approval. You gotta do all these things in order to be right with God. You gotta do better and try harder. That's religion. But living from a relationship with God says, you're my dad and I love you and I wanna, I wanna obey you because I love you and I know you want what's best for me and when I mess up, I've got this loving heavenly father that picks me up and cleans me up and points me back in the right direction. That's a totally different thing. So you've gotta understand who you are in Christ. You're a saint who struggles with sin living in America. You see, this is who you are. This is your identity. This is your occasional activity. This is your residence. This is not your identity. This is not your citizenship. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're in Christ, you're a citizen of heaven. You're a child of God. This isn't who you are. This is just where you live. Residence and citizenship are not the same thing. This is not identity. This isn't your identity. You're not a sinner anymore. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're in Christ, this is your occasional activity, but it's not your identity. This is your identity. If you're in Christ, you are a saint. So Paul says, I'm, I'm writing to the saints, to God's holy people who are in Christ, who are, watch this, faithful brothers and sisters. Here's what's incredible about the gospel. Jesus takes enemies and turns them into family. You were an enemy of God before you gave your life to Jesus. We were enemies of each other. 
There was hostility between us and God before I gave my life to Jesus. There was hostility between you and I before we gave our lives to Jesus. But Ephesians 2 says that through the gospel, all the walls of hostility are torn down and we have become fellow citizens of the city of our God. So we belong to God and we belong to each other and all the hostility that was between us and God is torn down by the gospel. And all the hostility between you and I is torn away through the power of the gospel. And we are made fellow citizens of the city of our God. We belong to this new spiritual family in Christ. And when Paul looks at this church in Coloss or Galatia or in Corinth, and he's writing to them, he sees all of their struggles, all of their imperfections, all of their issues, but he still addresses them as saints in Christ who are spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. He sees them from God's point of view, not from man's point of view. And so that's how he addresses them. Let me ask you this. Any of you guys have issues in your family? Understatement, right? I mean, come on, let's be honest. I mean, mine too. There's, there's plenty of issues and problems in, in mine too, and brokenness in mine too. I mean, we all have it. I, I grew up with three brothers. They were, there were many bloody bad fights. Okay. I'm, I'm just being honest with you. All right. I never thought that we would be friends, but we were always brothers. Nothing ever changed that. And so that, that familial connection, even when we had disagreements, kept us united and together. And it kept us working on those relationships. And there were times, even in our adult lives, where we have not been close, where there have been issues or problems. But today we're the best of friends, all four of us. We love each other. We have a great relationship with one another. You see that family tie kept us connected together in spite of our issues, in spite of our conflicts, because we know we're family, we're brothers. And so we stayed connected because of that familial relationship. Well, Paul says that he's writing to the faithful brothers and sisters in the sense of people who are firmly committed to one another, who are steadfast in their relationship with one another, in spite of the issues, in spite of the conflicts, they remain steadfast. They remain connected to each other, even in spite of their disagreements. You see, the church of Jesus is called to be a faithful family. And watch this, faithfulness to Christ always produces faithfulness to the family. A faithfulness to Christ will always produce a faithfulness to the family. If you're not being faithful to the family, then you're not being faithful to our big brother, Jesus. And if you're being faithful to your big brother, Jesus, then it's gonna bring faithfulness to the whole family of God. In spite of the issues, in spite of your disagreements, in spite of the problems that you've no doubt had with the church over the years, let's be honest in spite of some of your disagreements with me, maybe even last week. We are called to be a faithful family. We stay connected and we work on our problems. We work on our issues together. Paul is reminding us that we do not live the Christian life in some sort of individualistic setting, that we mature in Christ as we grow together, worship together. Christian truth and the Christian life is a corporate possession and a corporate expression. The church is the context where we should expect to have wrong ideas gently corrected and the right ones gently suggested. Where we turn, in turn, contribute 
to those same activities in each other's lives. You see, it's a part of God's plan for his people that they wrestle together, they read the Bible together, they pray together, they address problems and conflict together that we might all grow spiritually and mature. You see, it's what we do consistently and together that forms us. And God is working in and through all of us to transform us into a faithful family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse two, let's keep reading. Verse two B, Paul says to those who are in Christ, these faithful brothers and sisters who are saints of God, he says, may God, our father, give you grace and peace. Paul describes this relationship with God as one of a father to his kids. It's paternal in nature, not performance based. It's paternally based, not performance based. Every other system and religion on the face of the planet is performance based. You do X, you get Y. You do all these things and this is what you receive or earn or achieve. That's not the way God works. God's not performance based, he's paternal based. Which means God loves you in spite of your sin, in spite of your performance. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to save us from our sin. He loves you in spite of your performance. And when you come to faith in Jesus, you become a follower of Jesus, he continues to love you in spite of your performance. Paul says, you were under wrath and you were at war with God. But if you're in Christ, he says, you've received grace and peace. You're under the grace of God, receiving what you did not earn, what you are not owed, and you're living in peace with God. In this new relationship with God, you're at peace with God. You're not at war with God. You've received grace and peace as a saint of God. Years ago, probably about seven years ago, Mark and I and several others were leading a ministry called Raider Church. It was the college ministry that we led before we planted this church. And I was preaching one night, Raider Church started at nine, went till about 10, 10, 15. We'd you know, talk with people, pray with people, then tear down. I usually got home about midnight or so. And one night I got home from Raider Church, exhausted, tired. I usually went to my kitchen, lights are off in the house, everybody's asleep. And uh, I went into our kitchen and I got a protein shake and I was drinking it. Um, usually just to kind of recover a little bit from, from that night. And so I'm, I'm drinking my protein shake. I put it down at one point and I'm startled because Levi, who's about six years old at the time, is standing b- below me. And I'm, you know, hey, Levi, what do you, you know, what's up? What, why are you out of bed? Dad, something stinks in my room. Oh, great, okay. So I said, all right, let, you know, let, let, let's go figure it out. He turns around and when he turns around, I can see he's got poop on his neck. And I'm like, Levi, stop, stop right there. Um, I pulled back, you know, his little onesie he's wearing, poop all down his back. I unzip it, he's got poop on his legs. When I tell you he was covered head to toe in poop, I'm not exaggerating, that was the truth. He had poop all the way up to his head, all the way down to the back of his feet. He was covered in it. You know, it's one of those times when you're sick and a toot's not a toot and it just turned into a big mess, okay? So he's covered in poop. So what did I tell him? Man, get out of here, you stink. Go clean yourself off and then 
I'll put you back to bed. No, that's, that's not what you do. I said, come here. I picked him up, you know, did the Frankenstein walk, holding him out, you know, kind of walking him, holding him away from me. I go and put him in the shower, start rinsing him off. I'm taking off his clothes. I stay in the shower. Don't leave the shower. Keep rinsing off. I got to take care of these clothes. So I take his old poopy, stinky clothes and I take them out to the alley and I drop those in the dumpster. We're done with those. Don't need those anymore. Got to get them as far away from me and from us as we possibly can. We're done with those old stinky clothes. I come in, he's finished rinsing himself off. I'm helping him. I go to his room, I get him some new pajamas. We put on the pajamas, clean, spotless. I put him in those clean and spotless pajamas and laid him back down to bed. You see, did you know that's exactly what God has done for you in Christ? He takes your old, stinky, sinful rags. He throws them as far as the east is from the west. The scripture tells us he throws those old, stinky, dirty rags into the depths of the ocean. And then he gives you new, white, sparkling, clean clothes to wear. That's the righteousness of Christ. He takes your dirty clothes and he gets rid of them. And he gives you new, spotless, clean, white, smelling good clothes. It's the righteousness of Christ. And Paul says to those people, to those people, they will have, they will experience grace and peace. And so this morning, if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, I invite you to give your life to Jesus today and he'll take your old, sinful, dirty, rotten clothes and he will cast them away. And he will give you new, clean clothes, the righteousness of Christ and grace and peace will be yours in Jesus' name. If that's you, jump on our app, fill out our connect form and let us know that you're committing your life to Jesus today. But Christian, here's what I want you to know, even for you, if you wanna know God's will for your life and live out God's will for your life and you wanna know today grace and peace and experience grace and peace, then you gotta know who you are in Christ and you gotta know your family in Christ. You've gotta know God's will for your life. God's will for your life is to live as a child of God and the family of God for the glory of God. This is who you are. This is who you're supposed to do life with. And this is the purpose that you do it all for, to live as a child of God in the family of God for the glory of God. This is the way God has designed every last one of us to do this life. This is where joy and life and flourishing are found in Jesus' name as you live as a child of God in the family of God for the glory of God. God, we pray right now in Jesus' name that by your spirit, you would call all of us into your will to live as children of God in the family of God for the glory of God. God, by your spirit right now, in Jesus' name, call us. Do a miracle in our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're gonna worship. We're gonna baptize some people here in just a second, but maybe you're here and God's been speaking to you, whether that's today or over the last few months, and you've given your life to Jesus, but you haven't been baptized since making that decision, then I want you to know that today could be your day to get baptized and to go public 
with your new identity in Jesus and to tell the rest of the family, hey, I'm one of you guys now. I'm a part of the family. I'm a brother and sister and I want you to know it. And so maybe today you wanna get baptized. You didn't come thinking you would, but God's saying, hey, now's your time. We've got shorts and a t-shirt for you. You can change out of your clothes. You can put on some new clothes. Now you're gonna get your old clothes back, but we'll give you the clothes to change into and you can get baptized today. If that's you and you feel God leading you to get baptized because you haven't been baptized since giving your life to Jesus, then you can do that today. You can make your way out of your row, right up here up front to Brandon. He's got a black hat on and says, I've decided on his shirt. You can come and chat with him and he'll talk with you about getting baptized today here in just a few minutes. So if that's you, you can get out of your row right now as we sing and come talk to Brandon. But let's worship God and let's celebrate in baptism this morning.